But my glasses on now, I can say it's good to see everybody. Hope your New Year's gotten off to a good start. We are getting back to 1 Samuel. Do a little review. How'd the Philistines return the ark? What? <laughs> we, we have no... They built a new cart for it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have some, I'm afraid to talk too loud because that thing's going to come on and when it does, it'll blow you away. Is anything now? Testing one, two, three. I know they're working on it back there. I'll just walk up and down the aisles. Or everybody come and sit in the first three pews. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You hear that? Well, we can hear you. We can hear you all right. Yeah, here comes Robert. Are we still working on it? I guess I got to keep talking. Is that getting better? Sounds to me like it's getting better. Is that getting better? Maybe I'll just pull it towards me a little bit. Incoming. Yeah. Oh, hey. Uh, now we got speakers. I wonder how long those things have been hanging up there anyway. Yeah. Well, you don't have to say that, Robert. You don't have to say they could fall. <laughs> what are we studying? Acts? Is that <laughs> First Samuel is where we are. We're looking at First Samuel. How did the Philistines return the ark? We have the answer provided on a new cart. Any other specifics about uh, the new cart and the means it was returned? Okay, they, they made images of the tumors or the emeralds and what else? And mice and they put them in a box and put that. And why did they do that? That's how God struck them while they had the ark. So they honored God, did their best to honor God by making images of those, humbled themselves, sent those back along with the ark. And what pulled the ark along? Milk cows. Tell me about the milk cows. Okay, they had never been yoked. And their calves were in the pen back at home. And the cows, nevertheless, even though they had never been yoked together, and they have never been yoked at all, and now they're yoked together, and their calves are in the pen at home, they hit the road, and they took that ark right straight back to the Israelites. So... That's how the Philistines returned the ark. Where are we told where the ark was kept after its return? I'm asking, in, in this text of 1 Samuel, where do we read about the ark being kept after its return? What's that? You need amplification, Billy. <laughs> oh, okay, we're, we're getting to Ebenezer, getting ahead of us here. But look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, first part of chapter 7. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. 
From the day that the ark returned at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So Kiriath-Jerim is where it was. The first part of chapter 7 tells us about that in the home of Abinadab. His son Eleazar was consecrated to care for it, whatever that meant. So that's what we are told about, or where we are told about where the ark was returned. What happened to the tabernacle after the ark was taken? It's almost like at this point it becomes kind of a non-entity. It, it's not mentioned. Some have speculated that it was destroyed, but I don't believe it was. If you look at Second Chronicles, and you might make a note of this there, Second Chronicles chapter 1. When we start reading about, I better put some more markers down here. Start reading about uh, David and, and Solomon, their ascensions to the throne, and David's intention to build a temple. And why was David not allowed to build a temple himself? He had shed a lot of blood. He was a man of blood. And so this is how Second Chronicles begins. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Doesn't that sound a lot like Samuel? God gave Samuel a name, and the people knew that Samuel was God's prophet. God wants to, when, when God wants to exalt you, he'll put you up there. When he wants to bring a nation, even a nation down, he will bring you down. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and hundreds, and judges to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon. For God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So we're being told in the first verses of Second Chronicles, that the tabernacle survived. There are some who say it was destroyed by the Philistines, but this is telling us that it survived. We don't know why the ark was not returned to Shiloh rather than Kiriath-Jerim. None of that information is given to us. But this is telling us that the ark which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness was there at Gibeon. However, verse 4 says, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place where he had prepared for it, where he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. This is all very interesting and counter to what you might hear or read uh, some others saying about the tabernacle and the ark. So it, it's always best, I think, to go right to the scriptures if you can find an answer there. Uh, that, that was good counsel to me. And I will give it back to you as I have given it to others. If you're looking for information about God's people, God's history, go to the Bible first, not the commentaries. Go to the Bible first. If you can discover it for yourself in the Bible, you will hold on to it. You will retain it. It will mean more to you. You will internalize it more than if you just go to some commentary where somebody else has done all the work and, and read it. If you do the work, if you do the research, not only will you hold on to it better, but there's a lot of stuff you'll learn in the process. That's what I was taught, and that has served me well in the last four decades. So, man, I'm old. Four decades. Yes, sir. All the way through, and then you see over here in St. Chronicles that it's in Jerusalem again. We're trying to figure out where it is today. Okay. okay. 
there's no way to know. When, when the temple was built, many storerooms were made for the sacred articles and sacred items, but there's not necessarily a list of all of those. And supposedly, I, I would think, if they had the tent here, by the way, how old would it have been by this time? Barring constant refurbishing, it would have been about 500 years in David's day. That's, that's an old tabernacle. So if they had been refurbishing it, well, that's one thing. But if they hadn't, it's, it's pretty old. It may be that they simply folded everything up and respectfully placed it in a storage room in the temple and kept it. Uh, later on, we read about the book of the law being discovered in the temple. And you read that, and if you're not thinking, you can read right over it. But if you are thinking, you'll go, what? Discovered? They discovered a Bible? Well, didn't they have the Bible every day? Well, those things were put in storage. The older ones were put in storage. And if the ones you had were not being used, then so. At any rate, that's, that's something about the tabernacle. If you ever start wondering what happened to the tabernacle, this is about the best we've got right here. All right, do I have any more review questions? What is an Ebenezer? Ebenezer is a character in a Christmas play. Oh, what's an Ebenezer? Look at chapter 7, verse 12. They defeat the Philistines and so that uh, the people will be reminded that God was their help. They raise up a stone of help. And that is what is called an Ebenezer. Excuse me. Isn't that an interesting name for a fellow uh, in the story Christmas Carol? Uh, Ebenezer, stone of help. It's all very poetic. All right, let's go to the readings. By the way, anybody got anything before we move on, do some reading this morning? Yes, Steve. Interesting parallel to in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, the uh, Philistines, we said... Uh, honored God, you know, that God disciplined them, and they honored God by uh, making a cart and going into Jesus. And they said, uh, Give glory to the God of Israel. Uh, and and that, you talked about that, right? And uh, they realized that uh, they were, uh, didn't want to be disciplined like the Egyptians, so they knew a lot. And so they honored Him by making these images and sending them back. Well, uh, the Israelites also honored God. When that new cart uh, came into their presence, they chopped up a brand new cart and used it for the wood and sacrificed the cows that were pulling the cart on it. They, they took that immediately and honored it I honored God by sacrificing it and receiving it back. But one other one other interesting facet I was noticing here: both the Philistines and the Israelites.
Israelites did one other thing. They both didn't want to be too close to God. The Philistines said, uh, send, send us uh, ark away from us. <coughs> you know. And the uh, Israelites said the same thing after they had honored God. And they said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Send who... Uh, to whom shall he go up away from us? Both the pagans and the Israelites didn't want to be too close to this holy God. I, I was just reflecting and thinking about, you know, uh, society doesn't want to be too close to God. They don't want to obey uh, strictly. And sometimes Christians don't either. Uh, you know, they want to believe part of it, but not all of it. And uh, it, it just seems to be interesting to me that both said, send it away from us. We don't yes. want to get too close. Good, good observation about those parallels. Why do we teach our little ones what we teach them? What do we want for them? We want our children to have the best possible lives. We want them to be safe. We want them to be healthy. But, but this is why our little children always obey us in everything they do. And they never act naughty. Because they know that we have their best interest at heart. Uh, why I'm bringing that up is because what Steve's talking about is this tendency of man to move away from God. And why do we have that tendency? What is it about us? We want to do things our own way. Our own way. And it just chafes us to have to, I'm talking in general as, as human beings, to have to submit to the idea that we don't know the best way and we need to be going to God on a constant basis not a monthly or a weekly or even a daily basis, but on an hourly basis, if not more than that, to find direction for our lives. What we're going to say, how we're going to behave, what we're going to do. And even after we've learned some things, the influence of the world and the difficulties of life will, will pull us away from that. And we've got to keep coming back to it. So instead of being afraid of the ark, they should have said, Lord, this is your ark. We want to be close to you. and what, Help us to do this. Help us to do. So constantly asking God for help in this regard and coming to him. If we draw near to God, what does James say is going to happen? He's going to draw near to us. But you have to be willing to submit. James also talks about that. Paul? other directives that he or commands that he had given his people and the different types of offerings and the specific components to those offerings. But did he ask for that offering and what would you how would you classify that particular offering? Exactly. And there are other questions that we might have that I would have. 
Why, did they ask God about keeping the ark at Kiriath-Jerim? Lord, is this a good idea? Is this where you want it to be right there? Do you want us to take us back to Shiloh? What, what would you want us have us to do? And we don't know. Um, I believe there are situations like that where God looks down and he, and he looks at the heart as much as anything else. Now, I, I can't prove this with scripture, and I don't want to get into the, if you're, if you're touchy-feely, then God's good's with you. No, that's not what I mean. I'm just saying there are things that are not revealed to us, and we better not be making too much conjecture about that. But we can consider the possibilities. They, they did offer a, an offering to God, and apparently they didn't use the priests. It doesn't say anything about the priests. Uh, it wasn't part of one of the three feasts. Who knows? Uh, we're just being told that it happened. And I know... <clears throat> Well, there's one passage I think about all the time. It's, it's when Paul wrote to the church of Corinth and he says, You men, do not pray to God. How? With your head covered. You know, it's cold outside in the winter. And uh, if I've got my head covered and I, and I want to talk to God, it gives me pause. And I wonder, is that really what, is he really worried that I'm going to talk to him in the wintertime when it's cold with my, with my toboggan on my head? I don't know that he's worried about that, but I don't know that he's not. See, my heart is messed up, and yours is too. So the only thing we can do is to seek the Lord his way. And talking about the ark, you remember what happened when David tried to move the ark initially? He's the guy that wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He wasn't satisfied to see God's ark in a tent. And so he set out to build a temple. And God said, well, Solomon can do it. And so David started laying up supplies. But he did want to move the ark. And what happened when he moved the ark? That's when Uzzah reached out to steady the ark. And God struck him down. Now what happened to Uzzah's soul? Have you read that? No, you haven't read that because it's not in there. So was Uzzah's heart in the right place? Do we know that? No, we don't know that. What we know is he touched the ark, God struck him, and how did David respond at that point? He got mad. He got angry. I mean, you go back and you look at the context of it. He, they had arranged. They had a band. They had dancing. They had music. It was a big parade. It was a big hoorah. They were having a great time of festivity and rejoicing. They were bringing in the ark, but they didn't do it the right way. Uzzah touched it, and he died, and David got angry. What did David do later? He repented, and he thought about it, and he said, You know what? We didn't do it right the first time. Let's bring the ark in, but this time let's do it right. Husbands, wives, learn a lesson. When you're having your fights, just back off a little while and think about it, and maybe you'll figure out, yeah, we need to do some apologizing. We need to do some straightening out. We need to get our, our heads straight, and it's hard to do when you're emotionally charged. We've got an emotionally charged situation when David had that situation. We had an emotionally charged situation when the ark was taken. It had to be emotionally charged when they returned the ark under those circumstances. And why didn't they take it back to Shiloh? 
I don't know. <laughs> Why don't I know? Because as far as I know, Scripture doesn't tell us. They left it at kiriath Jearim, And then it winds up somehow in Gibeah. Why did it go to Gibeah? Paul, there's your question again. Does God tell us I instructed him to take it to Gibeah? No, we, we don't know about these things. One of my favorite passages is Deuteronomy 29.29. Anybody else like that one? Yeah. The secret things belong to whom? The Lord our God. But those things that are revealed belong to whom? To us and our children. How long? Forever. So what God has revealed belongs to you. He's, he's given that to you. And he's given it to your children, which has a pretty strong implication. We're supposed to pass these things along. But there are things that are secret that we don't know that haven't been revealed. And I've been so frustrated uh, watching people go off into wild speculation uh, in their belief about God. And it's just it's frustrating and disappointing in a lot of ways. Anyway, great discussion and questions. Uh, but First Samuel is a long book. And we're only in chapter 7. So let's, let's do some reading. Chapter 7, 12 to 17. Oh, by the way, I'm not, I'm, that's not a, I'm not trying to correct anything. I'm just saying if, if everybody's good, we can move along. All right, chapter 7, 12 to 17. Who'd like to read that? All right, DW's got that one. Chapter 8, 1 to 9. Doc's got that one. Chapter 8, 10 to 18. Robert's got it. And 8, 19 to 22. All right, Mauricio's got it. We are good to go. Let's read. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's life, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Now it came to pass that Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of, the, of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say for you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, 
for which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore hear their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to gather in his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to the servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out at that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all of the people. All the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them your king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Excellent, thank you. All right, I wanted to pick up there in chapter 7 where we had left off before and catch up to that idea of Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And then what happened with the Philistines? They were subdued. Not totally. Who's going to become famous for killing a Philistine in just a little while? That'll be David. And the Philistines will have arrayed themselves against the, the Israelites and Goliath comes out, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We're, we're coming to that. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. We're not told yet about his death. That, that comes a little later. But that's what he does for the rest of his life. And where does he do it? His home in Ramah or Ramah, however you want to pronounce it. And he's a circuit preacher. He goes to Bethel. He goes to Gilgal. He goes to Mizpah. Anybody happen to remember uh, the meaning of the name Bethel? It's house of God. Do you remember the historic significance of Gilgal? Gilgal means a rolling. When the Israelites came out of Israel, they crossed over the, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. They crossed over the Dead Sea. You can just about cross over the Dead Sea walking on it. It's so thick. But when they crossed the Jordan River, they, they settled down and named that place Gilgal, a rolling, because God had rolled away their sins. And so that's a place that has historic significance. And then to Mizpah, those, those three towns, those three areas, three places, Samuel would go to as he preached and taught and judged Israel. All right. What happened when Samuel was old? People said, you're old. <laughs> and 
your boys are not doing right. Now, I don't know if Samuel had gotten his child-rearing methods from Eli, but his boys are turning out like Eli's boys. It's very interesting. But his sons were judges, even though they did not walk in his ways, and they perverted justice. So, so there's that cause. But is that legitimate cause for the people saying to Samuel, we want a king? You're, you're old, your boys aren't doing right, so we need to have a king. Is that a reason? All right. So we can find reasons for the things we want to do, and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to have a king, and so they, they, they found, hey, well, this is pretty handy that Samuel is old and his boys aren't doing right, so we can use that as our reason to, to get what we want. And see, this is ancient times. We never do anything like that today. We never look for reasons to do the things that we want, regardless of what we know is actually right. And how did Samuel feel about them asking for a king? What did Samuel think? He thought that they had rejected him. Now I read this and I think, wow, Samuel really was a man. There might be hope for me because this is the kind of thing we tend to think that stuff's about us. And if you look back over your life, how much of the stuff that happened in your life was really about you? And you grow up thinking everybody's watching you. You better do this. You better because everybody's watching you and paying attention to you, what you're wearing and how you've combed your hair and all. And then you get to be my age and you realize nobody ever cared about anything you did. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I wish I could have seen that when I was a lot younger. This wasn't about Samuel, but Samuel thought it was about him. He's a he's an adult. He's a he's a mature. He's a spiritual man. He's blessed of God. He's uniquely qualified to serve as he serves, and he still has this idea, this is about him, and it's not. It's not. It's about the people and God. And God says, they have rejected me from being king over them. So that was God's plan. They don't need a king. They've got me. What did the Israelites want a king for? Verse 6, they said, give us a king to judge us. Like who? Like all the nations. And you, you hear this in America. You hear America go, well, that's not the way they do it in Europe. Well, I'm not saying we can't learn some things from Europe, but guess what? This isn't Europe. I remember reading a story about a guy who went to visit, uh, I think it was, well, I don't remember the, the place, but it was some huge estate in England. And he was admiring the, the grass, how beautiful it was and how well uh, manicured it was. And he, he found the groundskeeper and he said, hey, how, how do you do this? How, how? He said, well, we, we bring sheep onto it and we let them graze it to a certain point and then we move them through because their droppings are really healthy for the grass and we have it mowed at certain times. We put this kind of fertilizer on it to accentuate the greenness and we make sure to keep it uh, watered but not overly watered and we, we keep doing that for 500 years. 
oh, okay, now I see. There are some things that just take time, and you can't get the same result without time. And so you look at the way other people do things, and you make the mistake of comparing yourself. And we do that. We compare our families with other families. We compare our marriages with other marriages. We compare our, our jobs or our vacations, whatever we've got. We're comparing it with everybody else. And really, that's not smart. You've got your life. I've got mine. They're different. We should just live before God as we believe God would have us to live and make the decisions we like. I mean, after all, do you want me to choose what kind of music you listen to? Or whether or not you even listen to music? I don't want you selecting my TV stations. Although some of you probably watch more interesting stuff. I might like it. Let me think about that. But you know what I'm saying. We all like to do things our own way. And, And God had a way and they didn't want to do it that way. And they hadn't rejected Samuel. They had rejected God. And look at what God says, verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. What do you learn from that verse? Okay, the Israelites aren't going to change. Who else is not going to change? God's not going to change. Extremely patient. And he's telling, this is what they've been doing the whole time. Why didn't God just wipe them out, start over? (laughs) If he'd have wiped them out and started over with another people, what would have happened? Same thing, same thing, same thing. We look out into the world and we see evil people. Well, go home and look in the mirror. We're, we're just, compared to God, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Paul? He promised, promised that he would never wipe out people altogether again. Right? He, it's interesting. How bad did Moses want to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt when God first called him? He didn't want to go at all. And then they finally get him out of Egypt and the people rebel against God and God says, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to raise up a nation from you. And what does Moses say? Don't you dare do that. (laughs) Because people will say, you couldn't do it. And, And Moses initially didn't want to have anything to do with bringing them out of Egypt. And then he becomes their advocate before God to, to preserve them and keep them safe. It's like the boy's learning. And Moses was learning what I need to learn, to advocate for people. And here are the Israelites behaving like this. God's given them Samuel, and they've rejected him. He was their judge. And I understand, you know, the boys weren't doing what they should have been doing. That, that needed to be rectified. I'm not saying that's not something that needs to be taken in hand. But, but what God is saying is they've rejected me, Samuel. And they've been doing it ever since he came out of Egypt. So he says in verse 9, this is ominous to me. Listen to their voice. Oh, <laughs> listen to the voice of these people who want to do the wrong thing. However... 
what do you do? You warn them. We do this with our kids. They get to a point where they're, they're old enough to make a decision on their own, but we know that's a pretty dumb decision. But what do you do sometimes? You let them do it. Because there's no other way for them to find out just how dumb it is until they do it. But what do you do? You warn them. Now, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you. All right. So what does Samuel do in verse 10? He tells all the words of God to the people. What's he tell them about? Really? Ten through eighteen is all about one kind of taxation or another. This king is going to take from you. What has God been doing all along? Giving, giving, giving. But you want a king instead of me? All right, your king is going to take from you. He's going to take, 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 take. Why did the nation split when Solomon died? Why did Israel split? God's nation, God's people. Taxation, taxation. Solomon, even in all his wisdom, had been so hard on the people with taxes that the people came to his son, Rehoboam, and said, hey, we want to counsel you to ease on the tax burden of the Lord's people. And if you do that, the nation will be united and they will follow you to the ends of the earth. And what did Rehoboam do? He said, where's my buddies I hang out with? What do you guys think I should do? And what did they say? You tax them even more. You show them that your dad was nothing. You're the big cheese now. And how well did that work out? That's, that's why the nation split. They just had enough of it. So think about what's being said here by God through Samuel to the people. And then that comes to a head of all people with Solomon. Solomon, the, the man in whom God put wisdom above any other man except Jesus Christ. And Solomon's the one who taxes the people so heavily that the nation winds up being split. So this, this is a prophetic word here. God knew it would happen, and he didn't make it happen. He just knew it would happen. All right. So after Solomon, or after uh, after Samuel made this speech, the people said, you know, you're right. We need to repent and get back to God. Let's, let's go back to making God our king. What did they say? Oh, we will have a king. We're going to do it. We don't care. This is what we want. We think it's going to be great. And so that's what they said in the end of chapter 8. And the thing is, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 8, you see that phrase, like all the nations. And then you look at verse 20, and you see that phrase, like all the nations. They looked around them, and instead of looking to God, they looked around them and saw what the people were doing, and that's what they wanted to do. And we are under the same influences of today. You call it peer pressure, societal pressure, whatever you want to call it. We are under the gun, sometimes I don't even think we realize it, to, to live in certain ways because, well, that's the way everybody's doing it. 
I'm afraid to ask if you've ever bought anything because of advertising, but think about that too. Billy? It's interesting to me that every time when they went to battle with God, they won. They're asking for a king. Now, how many kings have went to battle without God and lost? Right. I mean, compare the two here. <laughs> I mean, let's think about this. We've got God on our side. We've got this man on our side. Let's go with God. <laughs> Go just right back to chapter 7, and it's, it's not like, you've got to keep this in mind too as things are happening in the Bible. It's not like this happened this day and the next day this happened, the next day this happened. No, sometimes there's some years between some of this stuff, but at any rate, it says in verse 8, it says, They gathered to Mizpah, this is chapter 7, verse 8, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. The Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel makes an offering, and it says... In verse 10, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Why didn't they say, you know what, guys, that really worked out pretty good. The, the mighty Philistines that we were scared to death of were routed because our God caused a great thundering that confused them and we were able to rout them because of what God had done. I don't know how much reading you do about uh, the history of wars, but especially when I read about World War II, it's, it's like the authors didn't intend this. They, didn't, they weren't writing about it, but everything they reported that happened, in fact, is showing the handiwork of God and his providence. So many things that were just by chance that should have been a lot worse or could have been a lot worse. Um, at, at Pearl Harbor, they hit the battleships, but they didn't hit the fuel depot. Why didn't they hit the fuel depot? If they'd have hit the fuel depot, then whatever was left wouldn't have been able to go anywhere. And they would have had to ship and ship and ship and ship to get enough fuel to do anything later on. The Battle of Midway was kind of an accident, but it happened, and it was a turning point in the war. Why did Hitler invade Russia when he did? If he had not invaded Russia, if he had waited, he could have swamped all over Africa and Europe, but he made the decision to invade Russia. Why did Hermann Goering send his bombers over England without fighter escort to, to protect him? It, just so many things happen. Why, hmm, why do smart guys do dumb things? Well, when they're not looking towards God... You read the Bible in so many different places. Romans chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians, talks about those who do not have a love of the truth. What does God do? He sends deception. Romans chapter 1, they gave up the, the creator for the creation. And God handed them over or gave them over to a depraved mind. It's, it's like you see it in history. And it works with nations, but it also works with individuals. And any time in our lives... When we decide, I'm going to do it my way today, you plan on having a rough time. Just plan on it. And it may not happen that day or the next day, but we will reap as we have sown. And the more we leave God out of our lives, or even push God out of our lives, the worse we're going to have it down the road. And I know these are a lot of applications, but I think that's what this stuff is for.
Anybody got anything? The bell's about to ring. Better hurry. Observations, comments? What's that? All right. Is this a good time to quit? I have heard a bell, haven't I? All right. Two? I'm sorry. Bless your hearts.